You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 16. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed shine your light upon us. You have shown your light on us in Christ. We pray that we might just bask in his warmth and his goodness. Uh, Make visible now what is not clear. Give clarity what we cannot see. Uh, We pray for these things for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today, again, is another lower elementary week. So if you are a pre-K through third grader and already have a sticker on your chest or your back, you guys can head on out of here with some wonderful folks thinking through Ephesians 5 together. Have fun, everyone. Well, I think we know that children like this are all very shapeable, are all very moldable, malleable creatures, but we are too. Every single one of us are shapeable and malleable. Uh, We've thought about, a few weeks ago, moving to a new culture, and moving to a new culture is often really difficult, especially when learning a new language, but we as humans are capable of adapting. Uh, Taylor, is she here? here. Yeah, there she is. She, She moved to Guatemala a few months ago. She is not only learning a new language, but learning a new Mayan culture. Crystal is not only learning Arabic, a new, a new Arabic dialect, but a new culture. Whether you are European and moving to an African or an indigenous culture, whether you are South American or Asian and then moving to a Western culture, a new culture is at first difficult, but then you begin to take on the norms and the expectations of that culture. That's why culture shock is such a thing. Like when you move to a new culture, there is such thing as culture shock. But it is also why reverse culture shock is such a thing. That when you return back to your home culture, what you thought was normal is perhaps now not normal. These are not necessarily good or bad things, but just that your expectations have changed. Well, we've talked a lot about this idea of newness in the book of Ephesians. once, what once was versus now what is. These kind of realities of when individuals and families and churches come into unity with Christ. We even talked about this idea of culture change like four or five weeks ago. 
that when someone moves to a new country, like when Taylor moves to Guatemala or when Jordan moves to the U.S. from Ecuador, like the new country doesn't necessarily expect that person who just moved there to drop all of their cultural norms or expectations from their home country. But we also thought about how Paul thinks differently about cultures, about how we thought about last week, about the city of man versus the city of God, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, that actually when there is culture change, when a person is brought from death to life, from darkness to light, that person is to now drop the old culture, moving from an old man to a new man and adopt the culture of Christ, becoming like him. But to take it a step further, Paul is just so aware of how quickly shapeable we are, unknowingly so, we can be this. I I recently heard of a pastor tell of a study that when folks first moved to New York City, unknowing to themselves, even tourists after a day or two in New York City uh, begin to walk faster. When you move or begin to just be around in New York City, unknowing to yourself, you walk faster. As this pastor asks that, even even if our walking speeds are unknowingly shaped by our culture, what else is being shaped? Paul wants the Ephesians, God wants his people, his children, to be awake to these subtle and really actually deceptive realities. Light and darkness is a major theme here in Ephesians 5, 6 through 16, and so is belonging to the family of God, being adult children who carry out the family business. And so both of these themes, light and sonship, family, have already been themes that we've traced quite a bit through this letter of Ephesians, but here Paul is putting them together, family and light, sonship and light, and he's hammering both of them. So we're going to use Paul's phrase at the end of verse 8, where he says, children of light as a heading to think through who the people of Jesus are and what they do. So we're going to think about children of light in three headings this evening. Children of light are distinct, children of light are illuminating, and children of light are discerning. I really tried to come up with another D for that middle point, but I failed you. I'm sorry. Displaying? I don't know. Uh, But children of light are distinct. Turn off your thesaurus, your inner thesaurus right now. I don't need any help now. Let's just move on. But children of light are distinct. The first thing that Paul says here in verse 6, he says, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, because of what things? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things. Because of what things? Well, the things that we thought about all week last week in verses 3 through 5. Everything that we spent an entire Sunday on of sexual immorality and impurity. And if you are visiting with us for the first time today, or if you were not with us last Sunday, can I invite you to perhaps go back and listen to that sermon, maybe on the podcast feed or on the website, just to make sure that we are all on the same page. Perhaps you have lots of expectations or uh, questions about what that means, and we just can't answer all of those today. We did that last week. But he is saying here in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, And about what? About those things, about a deficient or wrong understanding or practice of our bodies, of sexual immorality. Against these things, Paul says, the wrath of God comes against the sons of disobedience. Now again, the reason that Paul is focusing his attention so acutely here is because he rightly understands that how we think about the body, what we do with the body, both our own and with others, 
actually reveals so much about what we actually think about the entire universe. That's not an overstatement. What we think about, how we think about our bodies and what we do with them actually reveals quite a bit about what we think we exist for, what humans exist for, what the meaning or the purpose of my life is. It answers the question, what do I think other humans exist for? It implicitly answers the question, do I believe that there is a God to whom I am accountable? Is there a God who has created me and other humans? What does my, even my existence indicate about God's character? And on and on and on. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is no such thing as teaching about these questions. There is no such thing about teaching about sexuality that is trivial, that is indifferent, that is immaterial, empty words, he calls them. We are, as humans like sharks, always swimming forward, never stationary in our understanding of anthropology, about what a human is. And the direction of Jesus is actually a direction of life, of holiness, of increasing joy, while all other forward directions, even directions that bill themselves as liberating, as bill, billing themselves as progressive for human individuals and human cultures are actually ways of death. By the way, we put this in the weekly email this week, but TGC, the Gospel Coalition, ran a review and recommendation of the book that I mentioned last Sunday, the, uh, the book The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by the liberal feminist Louisa Perry. And even if you don't read the book, that post is worth reading. It is so enlightening in so many ways that while undoubtedly over the centuries Western culture has gotten so much wrong about sexuality, perhaps monogamy is one of the greatest ways to honor our humanity rather than repress it. So it's worth reading. Really, really provoking things to think about and consider. Anyway, Paul is saying, switch on your ears. Have your ears open. Listen, be aware of what you are being formed by, by what you are hearing. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There are no such thing as indifferent words about sexuality that you are listening to. I think we could imagine walking through the streets of Ephesus, a huge, bustling city in ancient Turkey. Imagine yourself or imagine a first century Turkish person walking through these bustling streets walking past a Roman military outpost, passing by like the magic and sorcery shops like we read about where they burned their magic books in Acts 19. You or some person walking by and walking past the brothels or the temple of Diana, which pretty unthinkable things might be happening inside. And you might think about yourself or a first century person as, wow, like that must have been a very tempting place to live lots of philosophy and lots of teaching and lots of things going on that might grab someone's ears or heart. But it is no exaggeration to say that we make the exact same walk every single day through the same streets, now just on our couch or before or after we wake up in our beds. A 30-minute stroll through Instagram or TikTok is no different than a 30-minute stroll through the streets of Ephesus. Instagram or TikTok can do the exact same things to shape what we think is not only, to shape not only what we think about the human body, others or our own, but what the good life is, what 
flourishing is, what we actually want and long for as human beings. So Paul is saying, even to us today, to us as we are mindlessly flipping through and scrolling through our phones, be aware now, keep your ears open, switch them on, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you. Those, those words that you might think are empty, those preachings and teachings that say that these things don't really matter, those who suggest explicitly or very subtly, what's the big deal anyway? Why are you making such a big deal out of that or of this? Paul calls those practicing and leading this kind of life, that kind of questioning of, God. did God really say? Those who have not been born of God, as Jesus would say in John 3, Paul calls those here sons of disobedience. That is, as Jesus calls the Pharisees in John 8, sons of your father, the devil. Now, this seems like a really harsh thing to say. Some Christian out there just calling people sons of disobedience and sons of the devil, but what Jesus and Paul are saying there is people who carry the, the family resemblance the family resemblance of your father, the father of lies, the family resemblance of disobedience, a way of life that doesn't acknowledge the created good of living in God's kingdom, a society of disobedience rather than a society of, as we've thought about in the past few weeks, a society of truth or a society of a right sexual ethic of our father in heaven. Paul says that people who have not been born of God are still under the good, just, and right wrath of God. This is a hard statement. But he says that those who are not born of God, who are not living in the kingdom of God, who have been brought in by the blood of Christ, are still under the right judgment of God for a rejection of a good and eternal God, for taking his creation, to use the creation, to turn it inwardly on the self, for the glory of the self, self rather than the glory of God. And God is good and right to say, I will not let you ruin what I love, my creation and yourself. And so, God, so Paul here is urging distinction. When he is saying, when he's saying, be careful not to be deceived by those of empty words, by the sons of disobedience, he is saying, because that is not you. Ephesians 2, you have been brought from death to life. So he says in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. Now, I think immediately when we read a verse like this that triggers all sorts of questions. Oh man, what does that mean for me and my life? Culturally, socially, vocationally. But this word partner is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Ephesians 3, verse 6. Maybe flip back over two chapters. Where Paul says this, that the, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So partakers or partner, this is the same word, and partaker is maybe a little better translation than partner here in chapter 5. It carries a meaning that one commentator describes as someone who shares in a possession, like we have the same thing and we use it together. So in the same way that both Jew and Gentile now belong to the same body and become partakers of the promise, Jew and Gentiles now are using the same promises of Christ together. Paul is now saying, do not become partakers, partners with the sons of disobedience. Now what does this mean? That we don't talk to or become friends with anyone of the world or something like that? 
Now, in 1 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says that if he meant that, that we were to never have any interaction with someone, never to associate with someone who is sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindlers, or the idolaters, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, then we would just have to leave the world altogether. Because all people, ourselves included, are this. Nor does it mean that we can't be business partners with someone who is not a Christian, that we can't be rotary club partners or PTA partners. We can't be lab partners if in our college classes or neighborhood reading group partners with people who aren't Christians. Nor does this mean that we have to try to leave society. We need to create some commune or village in the woods or something where only Christians live so that we no longer have to partner with the sons of disobedience. Or that we should have like cheap imitation Christian ripoff uh, versions of music and movies and t-shirts and breath mints. That's not what is going on here. But no joke, this verse, verses like this have been used and are still being used to encourage or even demand these kinds of moves from Christians, that we only associate with other Christians, that we try our best not to partner or partake with people who are not Christians. But rather than separation here, what Paul seems to be emphasizing is the word in our outline title, distinction. Separation seems to imply distance, like if we can just separate ourselves from the world by moving into the woods. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Separation seems to imply distance. Distinction implies difference. Not distance, but difference. In whatever relationships you may have, in whatever business or community partnerships you may have, do not forget who you are. You are people of the king. Do not become partakers, especially and most directly referring back to everything we considered last week, but do not become partakers in the kind of ideologies or idolatries of the city of man. Like you want to talk about people being malleable and shapeable people. I think many of us in our own lives, perhaps even you in your own life, Many well-meaning Christians move to a new place or a new slice of society in order to transform the culture. I'm going to move there and shape and transform the culture. When more often than not, we look up in a year or two and the culture has transformed us. The culture has transformed them. This is very easy. But this is all of us, all cultures, wherever or whenever, all cultures are predisposed to oppose God. So no matter where we live, no matter where we've come from, our cultures are constantly and subtly forming us in on ourselves, toward the self, toward the city of man. And so Paul says, be careful now, be careful. Not in like a, I'm so afraid for you kind of way, but God has set you apart. We even, in our profession of faith from 1 Peter 2, Peter, on this side of the cross, is looking back and he's using Old Testament language of how God has set apart the people of Israel in the Old Testament to be a people, a priestly people, in and amongst the nations, but a priestly, distinct people of a different ethic, of a different worship. Everything that we thought about for a month or so, several months ago in the book of Leviticus. And so Paul is saying, be careful now. You are in and amongst the people, which is good and fine, but do not become partakers again in that old way, even in the way that we pursue good things, the way that Christians have justified all sorts of political goals over the past few years. Sometimes you might hear, sometimes you just have to fight fire with fire, many Christians might argue. I think Paul would say, do not become partakers with them in that, in the so-called fire of ungodliness 
We do not fight fire with fire. We fight fire with godliness, with gentleness, with self-control. Why? Well, verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. What once was is now not, and what now is not once was. There has been a fundamental transferring change here. So Paul uses the same light versus darkness theme theme here that Jesus makes throughout John's gospel. The same argument that John makes in 1 John 1 about walking in the light because God himself is light. And we must walk as those who are in the light, the light of him where there is no darkness at all. But why darkness? Why is darkness such a bad thing? There's certainly a sense in which, obviously, when it's dark, you can't see. So try putting a trampoline together for the first time at one in the morning, the night before Christmas. You have to put on a headlamp. And even then, with a headlamp, it will be one of the top five worst nights of your entire life. Because it's dark. You stumble around in the dark. This is why David calls the law, the word of God, a light unto his feet. A lamp for his feet, a light for his path. Like, I can actually know where I'm going through a dark forest if I have a flashlight, a light to see. But as we'll see, Paul seems to be more highlighting that darkness isn't just bad because it's hard to see in, that one can stumble around, but that darkness, we actually like the darkness because we think that darkness can hide what is hidden. We want to remain hidden. And so when it is dark, then the light can become joltingly scary. Just like Kyle joked about last week, when the, that the guy who wrote All My Ways Are Known to You must have had a sense of humor, such an upbeat song, with if in the wrong context, is a very difficult reality. That God sees all and knows all in my life. Without Christ, that's a very scary thing. With Christ, and that God sees and sees all and knows all and loves me still, amazing. Praise God. But without Christ, terrifying. The floodlights getting cranked on into every nook and cranny of my life. Without Christ, I don't think that any human would want that. I know no human would want that, would welcome that. But Paul says, for you Christians, the floodlights have already been cranked on. God does know all and see all. You are seen, you are known, you are understood, and yet still loved, still welcomed. You belong to Christ. You are children of the God of light. Verse 8, for at one, one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You are now citizens of the city of God. You live there. You belong to the king. You are his people. You are his children, the children of light. And then Paul mixes his metaphors in verse 9, but he says, for the fruit of light, that's a weird thing, like light and then tree language, but he says the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. He's meaning the evidence, the effects, the fruit of light in your life is that the good things, the right things, the true things become characteristically true of you, being resembling the Father. All of his good and right and true things become true of the sons and the daughters as well. But what is good and right and true? We might read these verses and then ask questions of ourselves like, okay, I want to be a child of light. I want to walk as a child of light. I want the fruit of light, the good and the true and the right things to be evident in my life. 
I don't know what that quite means. There are so many difficult ways to go, paths to follow in my life. Is it best to partner in business with a bunch of folks who aren't Christians? Is it possible to use social media for my benefit and for the glory of God? How many hours of TV in the week is good and right and true? What does walking as children of the light mean in these areas and every area of my life? Well, Paul might anticipate that question, and so verse 10 he says, so try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Wisdom is real hard, y'all. It's real hard. Knowing what the Lord wants can be difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. Every hypothetical question that I just asked, should I go into business with unbelievers? Should I watch this show or not that one? These require discernment, but all of those questions actually require thinking, wisdom. These are questions that Paul is saying, I should actually think about. Like, it's almost an absolute given that we will have one or two or seven different social media feeds in our lives. Should we? I don't know. That's a question worth considering. Let's have conversations with each other and try to discern. It is a cultural expectation that we will every night spend an hour or three watching something on Netflix or Hulu. Should we? I don't know. Conversations about what does that do to us? What does that shape in our habits and expectations and that level of consumption? What does that do? There are expectations that we should and must have hardened political convictions about this and that way and that and this way. These are all expectations that we just kind of, these are all just the air that we breathe. This is what we think as not only Christians, but even as Americans. So the question that we, the questions that we must be thinking about is what is forming us? Who is forming us? Are we as children of light walking in the light? Or are we as children of light still dabbling in or just straight up partaking in darkness? Let no one deceive you, but walk in the light as those who are distinctly in the, in the light. Not separating, not distance, but distinction. Difference. Who and what is shaping you? But distinction is not only important and necessary for your own sake. Distinction, Paul goes on to explain, children of light are not only distinct, but second, children of light are illuminating. So secondly here, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. There is something that happens that Christians do to bring light. Now this verse has been used all over the place in the past five or six years of increasing political polarization. This verse gets used to argue that it should become both my goal as an individual to basically become an investigated, investigative reporter, to scour the internet, to learn about everything that is weird or strange or evil or corrupt in every level of local or national politics, that the Washington Post motto of democracy dies in darkness like almost become, must become my own personal life motto, and that also it should be about who we want to be uh, societally, we want to be, especially as Christians, we should then be about exposing policies that we disagree with or finding all of the pastors or politicians on the internet that we think are dangerous to expose them so that everyone out there must know who is the dangerous and the dark ones. But let me tell you, this is not what Paul intends. 
If we are not children of the, if we are not children of the light, if we are instead still children of darkness, if we are not children of light with the fruits being goodness and rightness and truth, if we are partakers with sons of disobedience, further defined here in verse 11 as taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness, then there is no illumination. If we are still sons of darkness, then there is no illumination. Like if you walk into a cave and you do not have a flashlight, you just being a human doesn't do anything to the cave. You must have light. The darkness just swallows up the darkness. The darkness just swallows up you if you have no light. You can't see, no one can see. But if you walk in a cave with light, that is when darkness is exposed. Now, to clarify here, Paul is not saying, go find all that is evil in the world and expose it. Rather, he's saying, children of light will expose what is dark and evil in the world when they are walking as children of light. That is, their character will be the one that is doing the exposing, not their sleuthing about. So for a Christian to argue that we must fight fire with fire entirely misses the point. Christians should absolutely be convictionally unafraid to speak about injustice, to speak for the weak and the vulnerable, to even advocate for wider human flourishing. But the ends must not justify the means. We are Christians. We are people of light. We are people of kindness and gentleness and sobriety and of self-control. In what is maybe the best blog post I've read in the past year, Brian Matson writes this. He says, many Christians now demand from pulpits what America got in politics, just as the times supposedly, supposedly required politicians with reckless incendiary mouths, so now the times demand the same from pastors and Christian leaders. It seems to me that this uptick in interest for serrated edges, for roughness, is explainable as a purely sociological and cultural phenomenon, and not, as all, and not at all as the product of genuine or legitimate theological conviction. We want in on some of that action, he says. As Christians, we want in on some of that action. Why can't we be like all of the other nations, Lord? It's fun being incendiary, having serrated edges. It's fun. But these commands are also in the Bible. Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 1 Peter 3, but do this with gentleness and respect. Colossians 3, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And so Matson concludes that sitting in the seat of mockers is what the blessed man of Psalm 1 very conspicuously refuses to do, to sit in the seat of scoffers, scoffing about at culture and at politics. And the sudden popularity of muscular, macho man mockery among Christians does not spell some kind of coming revival or cultural renewal. It perhaps is a sign that God is just handing us over to our worldly depravity. And maybe in the end, we will be like the chaff that the wind blows away in Psalm 1. And so for many of us, our discourse has become so much like the nations that we want in on some of that action. It's fun. It has become so worldly. That is then, all of that then just rips away all of the prophetic punch. The ability to expose evil for evil instead of just sounding like a clanging symbol of self-preservation. But this is not how you have learned Christ. When the church's sexual ethic 
when the church's ethic of truthfulness, when the church's ethic of gentleness, the opposite of what verse 12 says, shameful even to speak of, there is no fighting darkness with darkness, there is no fighting fire with fire, there is light, warm and transformative light. As one interpreter of Ephesians 5.14 translates, translates it like this, it is even possible After all, it happened to you and to you and to you and to you. It is even possible for light to turn the thing it shines upon into light also. The light of Christ. The light exposes, it illuminates, and then it transforms. Jesus calls his people a shining city on a hill. This is not a country, but a people. They will be known by their fruits, he says. They will be known for how they love one another not their policies or strategies. Again, these are not bad things. Christians can and should advocate for some certain common good policies. Christians can and should run for political office, but as Christians, distinct, illuminating. In our workplaces, we must be known as Christians. We owe our allegiance to the king in our, stri- in our sales strategies that we pursue, in our business plans that we make. We must be people as the king. We must look like the king in the relationships that we pursue and that we cultivate. We shine the light of the king in our promotions and how we get them. In our conversations that we have of gentleness and kindness, not with being abrasive or reactionary, but steady and secure. Because, verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Children of light are like the moon. We, people, have no inherent light source of our own, but only reflecting the light. And oftentimes, the darkness will not like this. I'm not suggesting that if we just speak with convictional gentleness, the world will just be so thankful, so persuaded, and then just immediately come to repentance. Oftentimes, the light will cause others to want to pull the shades down. But are we people, are we becoming more and more people who are actually capable of reflecting? Is there something there that can reflect? Are we being formed throughout the week in our Bible reading, in our spending time reflectively praying and considering who God is and who I am today and this week in light of who God is? Is my highest goal and desire tomorrow morning when I wake up on Monday more of Christ formed in me? More of Christ formed in me this day, this week, this month? Jesus, take me and mold me, make me and use me. Use me as your instrument to expand your kingdom. And however you see fit in the ways that you are already moving, use me. Or are we just floating along, floating along with little intention, with little discernment, with little thought or prayer? Are we actually being formed more and more into like a dark rock that can't reflect? That's what astronomers are most afraid of, dark rock asteroids that we won't be able to see until it's too late. We can see the whiter or the lighter rock asteroids that are out there. They're reflecting other light. Are we actually becoming children of light? Being more and more formed into the image of Christ, we are actually able to reflect, reflect the pure and piercing light of Christ. So perhaps expecting that the Ephesians might be asking some of these same questions and then coming to discouraging answers. 
Like, oh man. Yeah, you're right, Paul. I'm not necessarily being formed and transformed by the renewing of my mind in the way that reflects the good and the warm glory of Jesus. And so in response to that, Paul then quotes what is likely an already well-known hymn about Jesus. In your, most of your English Bibles, the end of verse 14 will be separated, indented, and put in quotation marks. We don't know what that is. It's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. If it is, it's like a pieced together hodgepodge uh, of several Old Testament quotes. What most scholars think this is, is he's just quoting from a well-known hymn that has already been circulating around Christians. So it might be like if I was talking to you and I was feeling like you were coming to a place of doubt and of, uh, of dread and of shame or something, then I might say, Therefore, Christ Church, it says to you, Christ is risen from the dead. We are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. That's what Paul is likely doing here. He quotes, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's likely making reference to your baptism, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Remember your conversion. Remember that you are alive in him. Now get up. Awake, wake up, stand up, walk with him. Arise from the dead, you're alive in him. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk as children of the light and Christ will shine on you. You will take on his character and reflect him. Not by your doing, but by his. Switch on your ears, switch on your eyes, switch on your minds, fully on. Be aware, be awake, stay awake, and walk as Christians, as people of the King. Walk as children of the light who are, dis- who are distinct and reflectively illuminating. And then lastly, even though we've talked already about discernment, thirdly, children of light are discerning. Verses 15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now we've talked a lot about walking in the book of Ephesians from God plucking us from the river that was flowing away from the city of God and now firmly placing us on dry land. So then Paul might say, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling or today as walking as children of the light. But here Paul says, but look carefully then how you walk. Don't just walk, but walk carefully. Not as unwise, but as wise. This is essentially a reiteration of walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord from earlier. Don't just float along without intention, but think about your next hour. Think about your next day, your next week, your next month and year. Which is then what he says in verse verse 16 to make the best use of the time, your next hour, day, week, month, and year. How and what is a wise use of your time? Now, I'm certainly not one of those who might say, yeah, reading a verse like this means we no longer have a TV in our house, uh, or any entertainment is a waste of time, when you could be using the time wisely to read the Bible or to read a book about the Bible. We had several folks over on Wednesday to watch the new Disney Plus Star Wars show Andor, which is a terrible disappointment. It was awful. But we watched it. It's fun. 
We watch movies and sports and several YouTube channels together as a family and with friends. All of these can be good gifts from God and to be used or can be used for his glory. But again, do you do all of these things on your phone or on your TV because that's just what humans do in 2022? Do you do these things that you do carefully as wise, not unwise? Now, I know reading doesn't especially come naturally for everyone. It's easier for some and more enjoyable for some than others. But do you realize that if you read 15 minutes a day, you would likely read 13 books every year? 13 books! Just 15 minutes a day. That's a lot of good time to use the time wisely to remind you that God exists or to learn about his attributes, or to learn more about the Bible. A lot of good time to learn about God's good world that he has created, how he has acted in science or history. A lot of good time to just focus your mind and your brain. One of the most countercultural things that you can do today is read a book that requires focus and attention and not constant attention-grabbing images or videos. Our habits shape our loves and our desires. These are ways to anchor ourselves in the strong love of Christ, making Christ and his glory our center, our highest priority in our lives, not just a Jesus hobby. A hobby that I think many of us really like. We like this Jesus hobby. It's a good hobby. We really enjoy it and we like it. But it's still a hobby. Are you making a plan and scheduling time to read the Bible and to pray? Do you know what to read or do you know how to pray? Come and meet with me or with Kyle or with Rabo, your, your GC leader. We would love to help you think about using your time wisely. Paul is urging us to make the best use of the time because why? Because the days, these days are evil, he says. He's not saying close yourself away from all of the evil out there, but to quote one pastor, we think of salvation as being saved from a place, hell or earth. But Paul speaks of salvation as being saved from a time. Did you hear what I just said? Paul speaks of salvation as being saved from a time, this present evil age. Even though this present age continues, Christians belong to the age to come. We live in a different time zone. Christians live in a different time zone. And so to make wise use of the time, just go ahead and borrow some of that future time for today. Don't wait for eternity, for communion with our triune God. Don't even wait for the times of difficulty or temptation or anxiety or anger to choose then to be a Christian, to walk by the Spirit, to walk as a child of light. We walk by the Spirit. We make wise use of the time to see Christ formed in me today in the mundane and boring moments of my life, so that then in the times of difficulty or temptation or anxiety or anger, we actually have light for the darkness. David did not just decide one day to charge against Goliath. He had cultivated courage and trust in God for his entire life. He made the best use of his time in the early and mundane years with the sheep. Likewise, we have opportunities every day to reject the formation of our hearts and minds by the world and instead choose the formation of our hearts and minds by Christ. Remember the pottery illustration from a month or so ago that the students who made better pottery were the ones who were making it every day, not the ones who put their entire grade on one piece of pottery at the very end of the semester. Each and every day is a sweet 
gift from the Lord to further anchor ourselves to Jesus, to have Christ formed in me. We don't stumble into this. We don't stumble into reflecting the light of Christ. We must walk in it, to walk with intentionality, to walk together as God's people, children of the family, together now with the family business of love. This is the family business, the glory of God and a people of love of the character of God shaping us and showing the love of God to those who are still in darkness. This is our business, to be people who are distinct, who are illuminating because of our character distinctiveness, and to people who are discerning how to use this time well. We've got a great week ahead of us, a great week, a gift of God, where he has given us the opportunity to be shaped more and more into the image of Christ. Let's make the best use of the time this week. Let's ask for God's help as we do. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are so kind and patient. You are so full of loving kindness, slow to anger. You are making us more and more into your people, into the character of Jesus. We're so thankful that we don't have to earn our way in, but that the Lord Jesus has brought us in by his love, by his life and his death and his resurrection, but help us to now walk as his people, to walk as children of light, reflecting his light. Give us wisdom. This life is difficult. We often don't know where to go or what to do, but help us. Give us wisdom. Help us to actually discern. Give us, Spirit, just the reminder to discern, to think Help us to have these conversations internally and externally with our friends and our family and the folks in our GC about how to use this week well. We want this week to be used for your glory. We pray that you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com